Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Cowboy347, Damon Harper. Damon, what's going on, man? Excited about our guest? Absolutely. Super honored to be here. All right. And our guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Steve Barry. And he's the co-author of The Ninth Man. Uh, how are you, Steve? And man, this is different for you, right? We talk always about what Cotton Malone. Now we're going to talk about The Ninth Man. So it's got to be an interesting change. It is. Uh, Luke Daniels is a secondary character in the Cotton series. And I've been wanting to give him his own book for a long, long time. And I pitched the idea to Grand Central and my publisher. And they said, sure, let's do it. But the, the problem for me is I can't write two books a year. Too much research, too much going involved to do it. So I called up uh, Grant Blackwood and asked him if he would help me out, and he did. And we put together a really good thriller here. Okay, good, Damon. What question you have? Um, super honored, super honored to share this space with you. Uh, in regards to the knife man, um, and I, I've read your your prior project, and just in the self gratification of the content development of this project, right? What was the what was the emotional goal? right that she was trying to make the most prevalent message when doing this project well when i write a novel there's only one goal in mind every novel i write and that is to entertain people i mean i'm an entertainer that's what i do i i, I give you some joy and fun for a little while uh to forget your troubles and have a good time now if along the way i can inform you a little bit that's a secondary thing and it's good but the entertainment takes primary you know you know right you know at the top this book is interesting because it deals with the kennedy assassination it deals with something from the assassination that i doubt very few readers will be familiar with it's something real it's something interesting it's something that i've been fascinated with for a number of years and i was finally able to put it into a thriller now when you think about the kennedy assassination wow you know uh, there's still a lot of you know conspiracy theorists about it and everything but it seems so, so real still, right? Even though, you know, I remember growing up in seven, I was born in 73. So we talked a little bit more about a Kennedy assassination versus now where some people were like Kennedy assassination. It's just, it, it was, it was just, it rocked the world in so many ways and so many things. And that's, what's really going to intrigue people, the readers, right? It's a great mystery. It's a mystery that will never be solved. All of the participants are, are gone. All of the investigations that were done were tainted in one way or the other. The Warren Commission was tainted. The two congressional investigations tainted. No one's, no one's really looked at this objectively. The one theory that made that intrigued me is the one we've used here in this book. And it's not mine. It comes from a nonfiction book published in the early 90s called Mortal Error. And I got the, the theory from there. This man spent a number of years researching things. He did a really good job of it. And it offers a very plausible explanation as to what may have happened that day. One, as I said, made for a great thriller. I, I wish I could tell you what the theory is, but it'll give away too much of the novel. <laughs> um, and you're right. It is a great mystery. I mean, there's, there's so many different avenues of perspectives, even, you know, just from the Kennedy's, the Kennedy's general family uh, lineage to Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? But um, in regards to this particular uh, novel, right, and, and, and listening to your last answer, what is the, the, the fun part about like the universal reception of everybody that your, your audience? Well, the, the fun part of writing a book is creating something completely from scratch out of nothing and making a story out of it. That does have an element of fun to it. I'm always asked, what's the most uh, satisfying moment of writing a novel? Well, the most satisfying moment is the, when you write the last word, because you've actually accomplished it and put it together. So there is that element of here. This one, as I said, was a complicated theory. Um, it never quite worked for Cotton Malone. I couldn't make it work for Cotton, but it, but it worked well here. And we were able to take this theory that has a lot of aspects and interesting little facets to it and put it down into a thriller 
that was fun. I mean, this is a, a great race through Belgium and then down to Luxembourg and then back to the United States, to Louisiana, to Dallas, and finally up into Wyoming. So it's a, it's a great trip around the world. It's a lot of fun and you're going to have, uh, and you're going to learn something that I think is going to go like, wow, I had no idea that was the case. So writing that book, having a co-author, that that's great, right? You said you could not do two books in one one year. No, I could not write two by myself. But uh, I've never written a full-length novel with someone before. It worked out very well here. Uh, Grant wrote the first draft of the novel. I, the, the actual idea of the novel was mine. I gave him the idea. We I roughed out an outline, and I told him though you're not you're not bound by this outline. You can do it however you want. I'm just giving you my thoughts. Then he wrote a first draft. And we knew this was going to be problematic here because he's never written for me before. So he needs to write my voice. He also needs to write Luke Daniels very well. He's never written him before. So we knew this was going to be a bit of a problem. I said, just give it your best shot. He did. Sent it to me. I rewrote the novel from start to finish. I just rewrote the whole thing, put it in my voice and filled in all the things that needed to be done. Then we went back and forth and made it work. So it was a lot of fun and it worked. And we're going to do two more. All right. That's awesome. Um, I like to, I would just like to say thank you for continuing to have the audacity to be a creative with all the success that you've uh, procured up until this point. And in regards to the, the, the future, the future, um, what is the, just from where you're at right now, where is the, the, the next thrill going to be seeing the, the sweat equity that you put into these, these, these novels, these prior novels? What is well, some, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, there's going to be, as I said, two more Cotton Malone's. Uh, I mean, two more Luke Daniels books. We just, we're finishing up the second one now. It's going to be out next year. It's called Red Star Falling. And it deals with something from Russia that's always fascinated me, the, the library of Ivan the Terrible, which disappeared in the 15th century. And, we're, and, it's, uh, and then something left over from the Cold War that go together. And the third book we're working on now to begin the, the outline of it, to get ready for it, uh, for me, uh, Cotton Malone will be back next February with a book called The Atlas Maneuver. He'll come back and uh, back to his yearly adventure. And it deals with something that's fascinated me for a long, long time. That's Bitcoin. Uh, I knew very little about it, but I've learned a lot about it. And the reader is going to learn a lot about it in this novel. All right. So like when you do this, and this is kind of things for people that might not know your work, you're taking different historical events and throw the characters into them. So yes. it's not like you're going from one year to one year. You're going to just different parts of history and uh, relating that. That's, yeah. really, that's really cool. All I, of my books deal with something from the past, something real, something different in each one that still has relevance today. That's very important. It still has to matter today because it's a modern day thriller. So all of my books deal with that. I have a wide range of stuff. I've gone over all history all over the place. So, you know, uh, readers can learn more about those at my website, steveberry.org. All the books are there and they can see which one interests them. Uh, man, I, I, I wanted to ask you in regards to, uh, you know, just other things that you have going on in terms of brand awareness. Uh, what are some other things you have going on next to this, to, to this project you have? Well, it's kind of cool. We, uh, uh, well, it's kind of interesting. Later this year, there's going to be a line of luggage with my name on it, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the uh, the Lug brand, L-U-G, the Lug brand is a very popular brand of bags that are made primarily for women. Uh, huge brand they have. Uh, and they approached me about doing a, a male version because they want to do some male stuff. So we're going to do some uh, a very interesting suitcase, shoulder bags, computer bags backpacks and it'll be the uh, the steve berry brand which is kind of cool i never <laughs> never thought in a million years i'd have luggage with my name on it but a nice know, ring to it <laughs> yeah it was kind of cool and, and and i travel a lot so i was participated in the design of these bags i designed them the way i like them the things i like in a bag when i'm moving around and how we're doing things particularly the suitcase it's a very unique suitcase that we've designed that uh, that that may make traveling a little bit easier so uh, <laughs> That's something I'll be doing later this year. Uh, and then I'll hopefully get to keep writing Cop Malone and some other books. That's the cool thing, right? You never know what next to write and what's going to happen. And we talked about optioning. That's the challenge, right? You keep optioning things. You really want these characters at one point to be in the film, especially oh. now with the writer's strike. It's really hard to think about, but you think it's going to happen at one point? 
Oh, I don't know. I kind of gave up on it, to be honest with you. I've been optioned like about 12 times. I don't even know how many times I've been optioned. 12, 15 times. It's been a lot of options. Uh, nothing's ever come of any of it. So I kind of gave up on it. If it happens one day, it'd be marvelous and great, but I don't really sit around and dwell on it or worry about it too much. What are your thoughts of the writer's strike and what's happening now with Hollywood and all that? Well, you know, they have to make their point, but at some point they need to sit down and, and work it out. You know, they're going to work it out eventually. Why not go ahead and work it out, yeah. uh, you know, instead of beating everybody down? But, you know, uh, it, these things have to run their course till they get to a point where the parties sit down and say, OK, I'm ready to make a deal now. When people start reading books more than go to movies, right? Oh, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, if they start that, right? You know, <laughs> start buying a bunch of books. That would be uh, kind of, you know, it'd be really nice. Yeah, that would that would be a nice switch over. Yeah, it's gonna happen. I mean, the other content creators, and it's crazy about the writer strike. And the fact is that they don't want people to create on YouTube, even if it's not Hollywood stuff, which is crazy. So the, you're at the point where you're gonna hold hostage. That's like the NFL holding hostage. Remember the days of the scab strikes in '89? And say. Oh, by the way, any other professional, any sports team should all honor this strike. No, that's 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 where it's getting a little. That's you know. not what. That's not how things work. You have your strike, and it's your issue, and it's your fight. It's yeah. not. It's not all of our fight. No. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Good, Damon. Next question. No, I was actually going to ask if uh, if the strike was affecting you know your your marketing strategy this year at all. Uh, no. I'm not sure if. You know, you are part of the uh, what is it the S the WGA or the SGA uh, in Hollywood or anything like that? No, I'm not a member of any of that. I, I I write novels, and so I'm a I'm a lone guy out here all by myself. <laughs> we don't we don't have any organization. It's just us. You have conversations with writers that are right in Hollywood that are under the strike process. I don't I don't know any screenwriters. I really don't know any. I've I've, I've never really dealt with them out there very much at all i've dealt with producers and uh but i've never really dealt with them no i wish them all the best but it, it it's it's just something it doesn't doesn't like, like we say where i come from i don't have a dog in that fight so i was steve i was on clubhouse which is a social audio app and literally they were saying they're trying to stop creators from creating youtube even if it's non-hollywood stuff which is crazy saying that and if, if let's say i ran one of my interviews from one of the you know emmy award winning actors i've interviewed or academy award winners i would get blackballed by the by sag i'm like well what is happening so as you said there's a different game hopefully it will get done so what do you what did feedback so far people had on the book what have you been oh, getting great i mean it's been wonderful you know it's it's an off brand because it's it's not cotton malone but it is from cotton's world so you expect to be a little drop in things but the sales have been very strong we were number uh uh, eight on the times list. So we did very well there. And uh, um, it was so far, it's been doing great. And it's a really good book. I'm very proud of it. It's a great story. How many New York Times bestselling books do you have now? Uh, tw 21. But the first two were on the extended list. You know, uh, from back then, it was 15 to 35 was the extended list. I made the, the New York Times list of top 15 for the first time with my third book. So technically, they've all been on the list, but in the top 15, uh, 22 of my 24 books, yes. And see, so he niched down, and you niched down with his history and figured it out with some other things that were really popular and jumped on it. I still think you'll end up with some movie. I think this is the time to option because you never know. Other people might be giving up, and then you might. this yeah. might be the time, right? Exactly. Yeah, ninth, so, ninth Man would make a great film. It really would. It totally would. Best place people can find info on you is go to? Everything's at my website, steveberry.org. You can learn all about me, the books, everything's there. All right, Steve, we appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome my pro the program, my co-host, David Hollenbeck. David, thanks for stopping by. I know you're excited about our guest and introduce our great guest. I mean, just some of the projects he's worked on just blows me away. And some of the connects we I have run into in my career of doing over 14 years of interviews and so many celebrities, he has met some amazing people and he's a celebrity and myself for myself. I think consider him that with some of the, the amazing people he's worked with. Go ahead, David, with introducing our guest. Yeah. Man, I, I am really excited about this. Arthur Smith, uh, we're going to talk about his upcoming book, Reach, 
hard lessons and learn truths from a lifetime in television. Um, currently, I, you know, and to look at you, Arthur, it, it's hard to believe that you've been in showbiz for 40 years. I mean, <laughs> would you start when you were 10? Oh, thanks for thanks for that. No, you know, I worked for Dick Clark and, and he gave me that special serum, you know, that Dick Clark serum, you know, the old America's oldest living teenager. So uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's good genetics. But but thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks for saying that. I wow. Mean, Dick you... Clark. It started with Dick Clark. Holy cow. Go ahead, Dave, <laughs> your question. But yeah, let's see. Uh, talk about the list of people he knows. But go ahead, Dave, with your next question. No, I mean, Dick, to, Dick, to sorry, Dick, Dick got me my green card. So there's a whole story about that. But Dick got me my green card. So uh, and I'm, and, you know, one of the most important mentors of my life. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean, I, I was just going to touch on the 200 plus shows for 50 plus networks. Uh, I mean, you've created some of the longest running unscripted series in history, including Hell's Kitchen, uh, the seven time Emmy nominee, American Ninja Warrior. Um, I, I mean, the list goes on and on. And I, I, <laughs> I'm just thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, the Titan Games with with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I mean, that's one of uh, Neil's buddies there. So No, he wore my knee pads. I wish he's, <laughs> I, you need to tell him that. When I was down south uh, working in in Memphis, uh, for when he before he was the Rock, but yeah, go ahead, go, go with your question, Dave. That's funny. <laughs> no, I I wanted to. My first question uh, for Arthur is, um, who is this book for? Yeah, well, um, you know, I um, I wrote this book really for a broad audience. To be honest with you, I'm sure there's a sweet spot for people who are interested in pop culture and and uh, behind the scenes of what's happening in sports and what's happening in entertainment. Um, and yes, it's filled with some great stories, stories that I never told before with Dwayne Johnson and Gordon Ramsay and, and Dick Clark and Simon Cowell and Magic Johnson and Wayne Gretzky. I, there's a lot of people in the book, but, you know, it is a memoir with a purpose. You know, I didn't, you know, take the greatest stories I've ever had or the funniest stories, although I think they're some of the greatest and some of the fun funniest or at least most interesting. But the purpose is is, is explaining what, what I believe um, is really important um, and it's been important in my life is that the power of reach, and that's why the book is called Reach. I believe when you reach, um, that's your chance at achieving your full potential. Um, I believe when you reach, you find out what you're capable of. Sometimes when you reach and you think it's sometimes outside of your graphs, you you actually find out that you can do it. Um, I believe when you reach, you realize the difference between a, a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. And so every story in the book um, is about some connection to this power of reach, something that I discovered. I was fortunate because I discovered it when I was very young. Um, it may not sound like it right now, but I was the shyest of all kids. I was incredibly shy, so shy. I was the kid my parents worried about. And something happened very early on in my life. And I talk about it in the book um, when I was nine years old and it, it changed my life. And I was never the same. And I didn't, I was nine years old. So I, I wasn't consciously aware of what was happening. It was all subconscious, but it did lead me on this path. And this path, I mean, I grew up in Montreal. You know, uh, there was no connection in the entertainment business. My mother was a housewife. My dad was a manufacturer. So there was no connection to the enter entertainment business. In fact, because I was so shy, television kept me company. Television was my friend. And so I would watch endless hours of television. And I still do. I am a TV-holic. My name is Arthur Smith and I'm a TV-holic. I can't stop watching it. I love content. I consume it by the, by the tons. And, you know, all this... Um, all this, like I said, played out. And when I look back through my life and I looked at, you know, what was the thing that I can draw from one thing to the next? It was this power of rage. And um, anyhow, that was a really long answer to a very short question. I apologize. No, I love shy kids, shy we have kids not shy anymore. Parts. We have to have 16 parts, Arthur, for, for sure. And when you think about specifically the power of reach. I mean, I look at it like the experiences that we have in our lives. Now, I'm 50 years old now. You know, I was a former professional wrestler, former teacher. All the experiences I've had always constantly have tried to strive for more and more opportunities have come through taking chances, through going and developing relationships and looking at things. How would you define people that are not doing what you say in the name, the power of reach? 
What do you think it is? Is not having the highest expectations for yourself, settling for less, not knowing the possibilities that can be out there for people? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. You know, um, sometimes people overanalyze. I mean, I think, you know, so many of the breaks that I got, especially early on, I have to admit it came out of ignorance. I didn't know how the business worked. I just knew I wanted in. And so some of the things that I did, like my first job at CBC, um, you know, years ago, I grew up in Montreal and I was living in Toronto. I was still still in college, studying TV and film. I didn't know how the business worked, but I knew I wanted to work at CBC Sports. I'm a big sports fan. I love television first. Sports is my second love. And I literally camped outside someone's office for five or six hours. I didn't know how it worked. I knew I wanted to see him. I knew I didn't have an appointment. I knew I wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in. And I waited till he came out of the office. And I mean, had I known any better, had I known what I knew years ago, I would have probably never done this, but I was so ignorant that I thought I've got to find a way to meet this guy. And I said, can I just, when he finally came out, I said, can I have 10 minutes of your time? He's like, give you five. And the five minutes turned into 90 minutes. And then at the end of it, he goes, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, that's a good lifelong goal. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. Ignorant. Once again, I am ignorant. And he goes, well, that's not the way it works. You have to work in, you have to be a PA and you have to work in local news and then you have to work your way around. And it was a whole, whole thing. I said, well, how long does that take? And he goes, fast track five years. And so um, when I heard that, I said, well, I'm, I'm not interested. Ignorant person that I was. And, and that was it. And I said, okay. But a few weeks later, <laughs> I got a phone call from his boss. And I was, I was brought back to Toronto. I actually went to Montreal to see my family. And I went, actually literally turned around the car. I got to Montreal, got this message on my answering machine, and then turned around, because I didn't have a cell phone because I'm old. It was way back in the 80s. Anyhow, I turned around, drove back to... Uh, drove back to Toronto and I had this meeting with all the executives, the head guys at CBC sports, kind of guys that I looked up to because I was in a, you know, dreamed of being a producer like them. And um, they ended up hiring me and they, I was this experiment and I ended up being a producer and I was very young and ended up directing, uh, being the replay director on hockey night in Canada, which in Canada is everything. And then produced the Los Angeles Olympics when I was 24. And then somehow I ended up as head of the sports division. I was president of CBC Sports. I was 28 years old. And all of this happened because I put myself out there, because I reached. And not only did I reach with, you know, within that first meeting, but continually. And this is this has been the pattern. I believe we make our good fortune. And Neil, you're right. Sometimes, you know, maybe people overthink it and and overanalyze it to the point that they get stuck in neutral. It's and too simple. It's simple. They want to look at these experts that say you need to have this in all place. Everything needs to be in place. BS. It's about who you know, going after it and asking and building and using your talents to what's your best your ability. People yeah. overthink things so much. They think they need a specific guru to you know, change things. And I got to follow this prescription plan. You talk to any famous person, and I've talked to you. You've talked to a ton. I've talked to a ton. It isn't based on a specific prescriptive plan. They came up with it. They went for it, and they kept grinding. And that opportunity came, and then they took that opportunity for another opportunity. It wasn't like you know how these coaches are out there, these business coaches, and the other people. You got to have it specifically this plan. If you don't follow this plan, it's not going to work. That's not the case. It's about believing. Nope. And going after it and and doing things that are not like the average everyday person does. Am I right? Am I on the right track in looking at this reach thing? Yeah, I, yes, I, I think you are. I definitely think you are. I mean, I think that you know, um, listen, it just because you want something doesn't make it so. Just because you're reaching for it doesn't make you so. There are lots of stories in the book, and I talk a lot about some of the successes, but I talk about my failures too. But I, I believe everything happens for a reason. I believe the more you try, the luckier you get. And, and I believe um, that, that, like I said, that you don't, you don't achieve your full potential unless you reach beyond what you think you can do. And that's happened to me time and time again. I also, you know, believe that, and I, I, I've been blessed because I believe that it's much easier to reach from a strong foundation. And, you know, when you think of, um, you know, and when I talk, when I'm talking about that, I'm really talking about my parents, 
because I had great parents and they um, they were very supportive and they gave me the confidence and, you know, um, they gave me the confidence to reach. And all through my life, I, even though I lived thousands of miles, my, my parents lived in Canada. I lived in, I've been living in LA for 30 years. You know, we spoke every day and, and I went through, I went through a lot in my career. It was, you know, I was young and I was uh, producing and directing, you know, when I was very young and the pressure was pretty intense and my parents were always there for me. And now it's been my family. My parents are gone. Um, and, um, and listen, uh, you know, I, I think about the analogy is like, you know, think about like when you're standing on top of a solid table and you're trying to change a light bulb, it's much easier to change the light bulb when the table is solid, right? As opposed to a wobbly table that's not secure and you're trying to change the light bulb. And so, you know, it, you know, it doesn't have to be your parents. It, for some people, for me, I was blessed with parents. I had it in my house. So I was already, um, I already had a good base to stand on. And, and, um, and for some people like who, who aren't as fortunate, you know, um, it can come in other ways. It can come from friends. It come from siblings. It come from something, but it's very, it is very difficult when you're, your life away from what you're doing is not stable. There's no question about it. And, and it's not impossible. It's just easier. So um, I was fortunate to, to be reaching from a strong foundation and it helped me. It helped me tremendously. And, and that's why the book is dedicated to my parents. And the book is dedicated to the five women in my life, which is I, I have two older sisters. I have two daughters and my wife, who's amazing. And all of them, um, they keep me grounded and they keep me sane because I'm nuts. I'm crazy. Like I, I have this restless thing. You know, it's funny, you know, in my producing life, some of my some of the qualities that help me make people crazy outside of my work, because I'm OCD, I'm incredibly impatient, um, and I'm restless. So at work, it really works well because I believe I believe impatient people get there faster. So so I'm like, I'm always, always want things faster. You know, outside of work, it's you know, it's, I I can I can be challenging. I'm I'm I, I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad, but I'm I'm a little nuts. You know, my wife is the sane one, and she's amazing, and she she uh, she puts up with me. Our, so. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Go ahead, David. Your question. This is the kind of conversation that you know you could just have a, a cup of coffee. I come out to L.A. I definitely want to hang out one point when I'm in L.A. To, sure. to I'm six foot ten, by the way. Former pro wrestler, as I said, so I'm six ten. Big guy, you know, and uh, I got stories just like you, Arthur. But go ahead, David, your question. Well, you mentioned this event when you were nine years old. Uh, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing that? Is that when your dad brought your first TV home or? No, 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 no. It actually <laughs> happened. Um, it happened on the ice. As a true Canadian, I was playing hockey. And like I said, the, we had just moved five miles. We had moved from uh, um, five miles. That's, that was it, from one suburb to another of Montreal. But for me, it was traumatic. This shy kid moving from the friends that I had into a new neighborhood, and I wouldn't leave the house. I was, I was, not, I was not in a good way. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. And, and, uh, and I, I felt bad about it. I remember feeling bad about it, but I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. And but I did play sports and I was I was a I was I, I, I was a defenseman because it was I, I didn't want to be in the limelight. And um, and they put me in they, they, they put me in a hockey league in this new neighborhood. And um, the, the, the coach looked at me and he said, um, we don't need any more defensemen. You're playing center. I said, no, 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 no. I'm a defenseman. And I was nine years old. So how can I argue with the coach? So I, I, I ended up playing center. And um, in my first game, I just survived. And in my second game, a crazy thing happened. I scored the winning goal of the game. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I had friends. All of a sudden, I said, well, maybe I should be putting myself out there. And I know it's such a weird thing, but I got to tell you, I mean it sincerely. That changed my life. I went on to become the leading scorer in the league. I don't think I ever scored a goal before that season. I was a defenseman who just did my job. I was one of the leading scorers in the league. And that led me to sports. And, and, and I started to realize, you know what? I kind of like the limelight. I kind of like being in the spotlight. I kind of like all this. And, and all of a sudden confidence happens and confidence such a, is such a big 
Such confidence is thing. the huge thing. You could literally, Arthur, it's the bottom line. If you're not surrounded with the right people and they bring you down, that destroys yes. everything around yes. you and you don't. And when you figure that super genius, uh, one of my mentors, DJ Reynolds, talked about flow. You got to have flow around you. If you're not having lots of negativity, because you're going to have hard times. If you're going to try to strive for greatness, you're going to hit that wall. You're going to hit that wall many times. You got to have surround yourself with the right people around you because it's not the normal thing of a day to nine to five job. We're going through things and we can escape the days are over. When you're trying to reach for greatness, whatever you do, you're going to have those tough times. You're going to have those, those, those moments where you want to give up, but you got to come back, but you got to have the people around you that believe in you. Yeah. And, that, but, yeah. and, and, and that's the, the key thing. And I mean, you talk, I'm sure what have you been when you've talked to people that have read the book so far, Arthur, or have had the conversations and, and met with you? What do they say based on why you've written this book and talked, told the story? What are the, your friends, your colleagues, people around you, even yeah. people who have written the books, yeah. have read the book so far? Well, the book's just out. So, okay. you know, it just came out recently. So, but there have been some people who've read it and you know, I love my friends and family and, um, you know, I love their opinions and they all, they all love the book, but, but, but something happened to me and it was the first blessing, um, of writing the book. I was doing the audio, the audio book about a month ago and people have a choice to buy the book or not, right? You know, I'm on a buy it. There's people listening today. They're, they're going to either like what I'm saying or, or, or not. And they're, they have a choice to buy the book. The person who doesn't have a choice but has to hear the book is the audio engineer. He has no choice. He's got to sit there for four days and it's his job. He's got to mix it. He's got to make sure the levels are there. And so for four days, you know, I'm, I met this guy and, you know, there was a there was a, you know, someone from the publishing company listening, listening in and I'm doing my thing and I'm doing the reading the whole book four days, seven hours a day. Got it done. And I get out of the the soundstage and right before I leave, he comes up to me and he goes, I, th- I think you've changed my life. I think you've changed my life. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to push further. I realize that I'm limiting myself. I realize that I haven't reached in my life and listening to you for the last few days has changed me. I swear I got emotional. I gave the guy a hug. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I was like shaking when he said this to me. Cause you know, it's like, it's this technician who, this is what he does. He listens to the books and mixes shows. And, and like he, like I said, he had no choice but to listen to me. So, um, so that got to me. And I'm, I'm, listen, I'm really hoping that the book is entertaining. And I think it is. And I mean, certainly it's, it's got a lot of interesting people. And it's, you know, I have this great story with Magic Johnson of, that I did something with magic and 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 seeing him and 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 you know really telling people what the real magic is like and the same thing with Dwayne and Dwayne Johnson and and Little Richard I who was wow. I got a crazy story about Little Richard I mean there's a lot of really interesting subject matter and then by the way there were stories about people who aren't famous who had an impact on my life as well so I I hope it entertains people I re- I'm really hoping it inspires people and that's why when you know when you ask me the first question about who's it for I really hope it's for everybody. I really do. I mean, I mean, I, I hope every, I think people are into, you know, the pop culture and, and uh, you know, of it all. Um, and, and uh, certainly if, if you're a budding producer, I just was at a television convention. I just did a keynote at a television convention this morning. And yes, that was my sweet spot because these are people who want to work in the industry, but I'm really hoping it's really for more than that. I don't, the things that I talk about, yes, they're examples from sports and from the entertainment business, but they're really, you know, examples that I think you can apply to your life, to anyone's life, if you want to grow your game, at least from my perspective. Okay, good, David. Another question. I, I really enjoyed this, Arthur. Just totally amazing. But go ahead, David, your next question. I'm going to have one, hit one more question for Arthur after that. Because I have a half hour show and sometimes 15 minutes and, you know, it just all varies. I, I, I created this thing and I'm happy I created it. That's, that's, that's my thing. And uh, go ahead, David, with your question. So the thing that I want to know is how you came up with, I survived a Japanese game show. Well, talk about a reach. 
Um, <laughs> you know, when I went to, when I talked to ABC about it, it was like, they looked at me like I had two heads. So um, there was an executive there that at ABC at the time who was into all things Japan. And we started talking about, you know, television in Japan, which is completely different. Um, the game shows in particular that of what goes on in Japan. And we started to say, well, you know, what would happen if we took 16 Americans and they didn't know why they were on a show. They just knew they were on a competition show and brought them to Japan. And um, and the interesting thing, um, you know, he was he he got it. Um, he was scared of it. And and so was I. But we started he said, why don't you write a, a show Bible, which is basically the, you know, in television, you know, before they give you a pilot, it's kind of like they call it paper development, basically. And we wrote this Bible, never, ever going to Japan to do any work because they didn't give us any money. It was a small fee to do paper development. We wrote this Bible, it's like a 40 page Bible on what the show would be, what the challenges would be. And I actually was on location shooting Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. I remember where I was. I was in the control room. I got a phone call from ABC, and and he and it was this guy Johnson's Day, and he says, "I just read the Bible. So did Steve McPherson, who's president of the network, and we're laughing hysterically. Um, can you do this show?" And I go, "Yeah, of course." And and this was like February. He goes, "We need it on the air in June." I go, "I I I could, could just, did you say June?" I said, "I." I've never been to Japan. I just like, this is, I don't even know if it's possible. I need a little, then they said, listen, it's the NBA playoffs and it's the summer and it's the final and we want to promote it. And I said, the end of June? They go, yes, the end of June. I said, okay, it's marginally better, but fine. Can I call you back tomorrow? I called them back. Reach, reach. I just, I called back the next day with not much more information and said, yeah, we can do it. And um, it was challenging and difficult and and special because we actually pulled it off as a matter of fact we had a couple of people who were working on the show who quit because they thought they were going to be out of work because they never thought we were going to get into production they actually quit the show and i kept saying it's going to happen we're going to japan and sure enough we shot the show it was an amazing journey um it, it the story is because it is such an interesting crazy reach it's in the book um and the show goes on to win the format of the year. It won the Rose Door Award as format of the year. And, you know, it wasn't our biggest hit. We did a couple of seasons of it. Um, the novelty started to wear off, but man, oh man, what a, what a journey and what a, what a crazy trip. And like I said, from this ridiculous conversation at a network to something, right. I believe that people crave freshness. Yes. I really do. I really believe in the, in, you know, in original programming and original, we're, we're, you know, networks tend to do derivative stuff. They tend to do copycat stuff. Yeah. And it drives me nuts because I never, I, I don't think- Social media is doing that now too. Social media is doing it as well. Social yeah. media is doing those copycats and those derivatives and those different things. So, and you are talking about original. So here's the last question after you. So what are the other projects? What's, what, what, are, what are Arthur Smith's goals moving forward? He's accomplished all these things and TV, you got a lot more years ahead of you. That you're going to be doing this. Do you have a like a, a goal that you want to reach? <laughs> Look at that! I brought up the whole reach for Arthur. It's a good word. It's a good word. Are you going to be the president of some organization someday, or are we looking at you running a TV organization? To no, the, uh, definitely not. The definitely not. Okay. Listen, I've been there. I've, I've I was the head of program production and news at Fox Sports. I was a senior executive at Universal. I learned by doing those jobs that that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I like making stuff. I'm a maker. And by the way, that's why the book has been such a pleasure because the book is an outlet for me. I'm all about creating and trying to do something. The book represents a chapter in my life where I'm trying to mentor more, inspire more, give back, pay it forward. As a matter of fact, all the proceeds from the book are going to a foundation that I set up called the Reach Foundation. And the Reach Foundation gives money to six charities. All of these charities lift people up in some way. And, and that's what I want to spend my time on. I'm still going to produce shows. I like the action too much. And my wife won't let me stay in the and house. And what shows are you producing right now? Um, Hell's Kitchen 22nd season, American Ninja Warriors on its 15th season. We have a show on TLC called Welcome to Platful. We actually have a new show that was just announced. That's from your old life. It's uh, we're working with the WWE um, and a show called Future Future Stars, or I think it's Future Stars. We keep changing the title, maybe Future Superstars, and it's about the recruiting process 
of, of the WWE. And now, you know, they recruit these high level athletes and they bring them to a training camp and yeah. they do it right before WrestleMania. Right. And you're probably familiar with this. And then, and they train them and, 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 and it, we, we shot 70% of the show already. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's kind of like the hard knocks, right? You know, the hard the HBO show of WWE. It's yeah. a completely different thing in the sense that, and that, it's know, a lot different than the days of MTV and Tough Enough. So again, I was yeah. in the '90s in the the Attitude Era, and what's sad about professional wrestling is if you're going to go get the world class athletes to do it, it's going to work. It's going to work. That's WWE's shtick. It's going to bring professional wrestling back. That's my yeah. prediction. At one point, somebody, and especially you remember in Canada, how popular pro wrestling was. Sure. I worked for the, and, and a lot of guys from Canada, uh, I, I ended up working with back in the day. I believe that it's amazing that these broadcasts actually put the best professional wrestlers, what the fans enjoy and these things. And it's interesting, but I'm, in, I'm intrigued by it for sure. I've had Triple H on my show. I've had Stone Cold on my show working yeah, with NBC. Yeah. I worked, you yeah. know, just a six minute interview, but you know, the tour thing, but I yeah. know some of these guys that were closest to this. And I think it's going to be interesting to see where pro wrestling goes. Pro wrestling misses the showmanship, the story, the yeah. flares, all that. Do you think that will ever be created again? You know it's what I mean? Always, it, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And Neil, you, when you come to LA, you and I have, we have to go out for sure. Because we, we 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 can talk some we can talk some good stories. I have about. some big news, big things coming for me. I know not to the level you're at yet, but I'm not giving up. I'm 50, and I got I got one thing that I have is connections, and there's opportunity. And I I love interviewing people, and I've done over 9,000 plus interviews. I'm number 11 celebrity podcaster world according to Feedspot now, and I want to go next further because I can have a conversation with anybody anytime anywhere. It's just my gift. And I enjoy That's it. Great. That's and, great. That's and, great. And, and I teach people like David how to do this. And I teach other people as well. But I would say to you as pro, this pro wrestling idea, hopefully please let your publicist know to get me on the, uh, the list when you're going to do the promotion of it. Any of yeah. your projects, I'm happy to do yeah. anything with Hell's Kenton, American Ninja Warrior. I've worked with them before. I've had a lot of your, your top stars on and different things. And I also had somebody who's one of the other producers. It'll come to me in a second. I was uh, so I probably that's how you got on my list to interview. But the best place people can go right now and purchase your book, where can they go? Uh, books are available anywhere. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, your local bookstore, any anywhere you would normally buy a book. So, um, but but thank you, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, you're you're gonna love the you're gonna love the WWE show. It's really it's so good. I and so authentic and so pure and stuff like that. And 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 by the way, it's. They they spend and you you would appreciate this and who am I telling you know way more about this than I do. There's there's this whole element where they work on the showmanship and they work on the promo and they work on the character and you see that process and it's great and every and everybody's in it. I mean Triple H is in it and Lemiz is in it and you know that and by the way I had such a good time working with the WWE. I remember when Tough Enough Tough Enough wasn't our show. We have a, we've done a lot of shows and we're like in terms of sports entertainment. You know we've done more than anybody else. And I always wanted to do something with the WWE. And uh, and this was the one I went to them and said, you know, instead of bringing Tough Enough back, they, you know, the last Tough Enough wasn't very good. Um, and um, but but I liked the show when it was on years ago. Um, and and I said, you know, you know what you need to do? You need to do something really authentic and really show the process. And you guys already do this. Anyhow, let us come in and, and just follow these stories. Um, and uh, it, it turned out great. We're still shooting it because. They, you know, 10 of them, 10 of the people went to camp, got contracts. And then when they get the contracts, it's so emotional. It's so incredible when they find out that, that they're going to train in Orlando. It's it's like they won the lottery. And then now we're following um, the select few in Orlando. That's the last part of the, of, of, of the shoot that's going to happen over the next few months. Well, fantastic. So, Let me know when that uh, tour happens and all that stuff, the interview and all that stuff. And some of the guys that were, you know, like Adam Pierce, if you ran into Adam, Adam and I, we uh, worked down when he was 19 and I'd wrestled him in Grand Rapids, Michigan, then hit with Rhino. And then we'd head out and we'd work a town out in Canada, <laughs> everywhere. So I did the Indies, retired in Bremen, Germany, and I lost my voice now. <laughs> That's unbelievable. But best place again, Arthur's work. Get the book anywhere. I appreciate have, have you guys having me on. Um, I hope it inspires people. It's all the money's going to charity too, so it's kind of nice. 
Um, but uh, I think there's some some good takeaways. So once again, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it, Arthur. Uh, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited again for a celebrity co-host like my friend, David Hollenbach, Hollenbach Leadership. David, thanks for co-hosting again. You know, we've had some pretty interesting guys on, but I know you love musicians, don't you, David? Oh, yeah, man. This one is a great one. This is, uh, you know, some have said that this is like the next Stevie Ray. I mean, Jimmy Jimmy Vaughn, Stevie Ray Vaughn, Johnny Winter. I mean, you know, we're we're getting to talk to him when he's he's young, passionate, full of energy, full of life, and and man, th this uh, I I'm, I've really been looking forward to talking to this guy. So, um, you know, for all you listening, this is uh, Houston, Texas-based blues rock guitarist, vocalist, songwriter Clay Melton. Thanks for joining us, Clay. Hey y'all! Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. So um, you're in Houston right now, right? Yes. Uh, it, uh, yeah. it kind of looks like you're in a recording studio there. <laughs> I'm actually um, <clears throat> right now uh, uh, kind of outside of Houston, my dad's place. He's got a barn out here and uh, my house is in process right now with some renovations. So I'm kicking it out here, kind of out of the sticks. So got got my piano with me and some gear. That's about all I took from the house. So how how do you feel about you know people comparing you to Steve Ray and Johnny Winter and all that? Uh, you know, I mean, all those uh, we all use comparisons, you know, when we're thinking talking about music or when we find out about new music, and it's definitely flattering, but mostly it just makes me feel like I need to practice <laughs> and go go sit down somewhere with my guitar, you know, because it, it is flattering when it's artists that I look up to and things like that, you know. Yeah, and. Uh, what does that mean for you in your career being compared to those that's that's got to mean i better really step it up and be really motivated to go as far as i can yeah i mean you know it's uh comparisons don't bother me because it, it never changes uh like like some people may uh let it bother them but it doesn't change what we're going to do when it comes down to writing music or what we're performing you know it's just if anything, it's another, you know, ingredient in the pod, but definitely there's that feeling of like, all right, we need to show up then if people are throwing around, you know, comparisons like that. I'd like to dig a little deeper into like maybe who some of your influences are and, and I mean, geez, how long have you been playing? Cause I mean, you're, you're phenomenal. You know, I've, I've read a couple of things that, uh, you know, compare it to like a, a prodigy um you know how, how long have you been playing um uh, round about uh, almost 16 years let's see i've been performing out live for half of my life now for 15 years and um and so you know it's been it's been what i love to do since i was in in middle school is really when i started playing out live um and that aspect of everything was where you know my early influences started with hendrix and Stevie Ray and ZZ Top, these artists you can't play guitar or live in Texas and not listen to. Um, <clears throat> but then, like, it really stemmed back to a lot of their earlier influences. Uh, Buddy Guy was an early, more traditional blues favorite of mine. Um, and then I like players like Wes Montgomery, more on the jazz side. Um, and so all these classic styles are I was around pretty heavily as a, as a young player. But when I got to get out and start playing live, that's where everything, my love kind of grew deeper for doing all this. And also like, uh, it's like a, just a real time lesson whenever you're in a live environment, you know, what the crowd interacts with or what they respond to or what they, you know, when they leave, go get a drink at the bar. And so that's kind of, you know, it's been a huge teacher as well. Wow. And so that's the, the thing of experience. Who have you learned from to become better at what you do? Um, you know, early on, it was, I was lucky that Houston had a really healthy, uh, music scene and they still have a great music scene, but for my particular uh, musical upbringing, really, um, I was welcomed by these older players in the Houston community, uh, band leader Congos, uh, by Carlos, uh, Carlos Johnson was a band leader that gave me some of my first opportunities on stage, uh, playing at, you know, local spots in Houston. And, you know, that's where I learned where, how to shut up on stage, how to listen and share the stage and 
you know, and just to, you know, really pay attention to what's happening around you musically. And so I was thankful to have like a lot of old, much older mentors when I was growing up. And I think that's important for younger players too, or anybody getting into, you know, doing music in front of people. Yeah, I mean, you've shared the stage with with Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Sir Earl Toon of Cool and the Gang, Chris Daughtry, Robert Cray. It, you know, you're you're doing these tours, and actually, you're ramping up for your 2023 tour. Um, who are you touring with? And you know, since you started, who who would you say you've enjoyed sharing the stage with the most? Oh man, that's a, that's a lot, a lot, of, lot to go through there on that question. A lot of experiences. <laughs> I, Cyril Toon was a special one. Um, Cause he, he's a special person uh, on and off the stage. And so getting to meet, we meet with him and spend time with them. You know, um, I learned a lot, you know, his mentor was Otis Blackwell that wrote songs like fever and all these, you know, hugely legendary songs. And so, um, just spending time around songwriters like that is a huge lesson in itself. So then like when we played with Grand Funk Railroad, who are, you know, rock and roll legends, I consider, um, you just learn, even just by watching the way that they interact with the crowd from the first downbeat to the last song and just how they really, you know, connect with an audience. Um, you can just tell they've been doing it for, for decades now and that they, they're masters at their craft, you know. Okay, and so from the, I, I think David, you were asking the next question, part of that question, right? Did he answer everything? Yeah, like so you're you're getting ready to go on tour, or have you started touring yet? Uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, uh, that's you did ask how, who we've been playing with now, and last year we really did a lot of sport tours. We supported Des Rocks out of New York City, the Blue Stones out of Canada. Uh, this year we're mostly doing headlining dates. Uh, we're, we've done about a month and a half on the road uh, this spring and uh, beginning of summer. Uh, just been home for a couple of weeks and we're about to head up back out um, for another, you know, I think we have probably, I'd say, 30 more days on the road in the upcoming weeks. Um, so it's, it's going to be, a, it's a lot of work, but it's great because we're also in a writing phase and getting to try out new material in front of crowds, which is usually you know, educational for us when we're in this, those kind of beginning stages with material. So what kind of crowds do you play in front of? How big are the crowds for each one of your events? Or <laughs> um, we right now we've been playing, uh, we've been playing festivals, which, you know, our festival size, depending on the time slot and stuff like that. Like we played Baton Rouge blues festival last month and that had a great audience. And then we're doing theaters and clubs, you know, theaters around, you know, uh, 500 to a thousand clubs, more like, you know, two to 400. Um, so it varies, you know, and I still, you know, even if I'm just going out uh, for a night in Houston um, by myself or with some friends, I love going to a dive bar and seeing an act that's great killing it in a small club. You know, I love intimate environments. So it does the same like performance wise too. Um, I enjoy all of them kind of in different ways personally. All right, David, next question. Do you, uh, do you have any dates coming up in central Florida? Um, I'm asking for myself. Yeah, I know we are. Um, we got five or six dates we're uh, announcing soon up in um, in October, I believe we're in Florida. I know we're in Ormond Beach, um, Del Rey Beach, um, and then working around maybe Orlando and trying to hit some other uh, cities on that same run. Nice. Yeah, Ormond is only like 45 minutes from where I'm at, man. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be watching what you do because. Uh, I definitely, after listening to your music and, and reading about you, um, I'm definitely a fan. So, yeah, this cool, is man. cool, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, come out. We'll, uh, we'll buy you a beer. All right. So, Clay, basically, what is your goal? Where do you want to see yourself in music? What do you want to accomplish? You know, 15 years, but yes, you have a long way to go to go where you want to come. Do you have, like, huge goals for yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I just like any other artist, I want to play as many places to as many people as we can, you know, new experiences, new destinations. To me personally, the kind of the fundamental goal that I've always cared about is being able to self-sustain, being able to just create music the rest of my life. 
and be able to support that by playing music live, you know, and continue to make records. We're really excited. We haven't announced the full project, but we're going to be going down to uh, Barranquilla, Colombia to work with our producer. We've known for a long time uh, who used to live in Austin, but moved back to his home down in Colombia and has set up a studio. So that will be our next album experience. We're going to bring in some local Latin percussion and, and brass and stuff like that. And so that's kind of our, our next endeavor. That's a little bit loftier of a, you know, goal to accomplish, but, um, but, you know, changing up the experiences musically is what keeps all this exciting too. So our goal is to keep playing, keep riding. All right, Clay, best place people can find information on you. Where can they go? Yeah, it's uh, claymelton.com for tour dates, tickets, merch, store, all that. And online, all the social media, it's uh, Clay Melton Music. What do you think the biggest challenge is for you to sell merch and then also online sell merch? As far as, you know, I mean, there's just no replacement. Merch is either cool or it's not. People either buy it or, or they're just like, yeah, I got one of those or something like that. We try not to do too many black concert t-shirts because everybody's got a million black concert t-shirts in their closet already, you know, <laughs> including myself. Um, so, you know, just trying to keep fresh designs and, uh, and get in front of people, obviously. Online, it's a little bit more, you know, just like the show marketing, it's a l there's a little more tricks to it, right? Um, you got to get kind of clever with your marketing. At the show, it's, you know, it's uh, put up or shut up. You know, people either dig it or they don't. This, you, big festivals, do you do well merch sales? Yeah. The festivals are great. Um, yeah, especially because they're usually short, shorter sets right. uh, for all the performers. So if people dug it, then they're usually left one and a little more, and we end up getting to talk to them over the, the merch table, you know? I remember the merchandise table as a former professional wrestler when I was in the independents, and we some of the shows I did, I did 2000 in merch, where yeah. I only got paid 100 bucks to show up, but got <laughs> two, two, did two grand in merch. So I know how much merch is important, and then the bigger the crowd, the better opportunity in merch if you kill it, right? 100%. So what do you think is the the thing now? Is it that's why people tour now more than because you don't make any money off the music as much anymore? It's more merch and going and getting paid to the venue, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, music. The monetary value of a song is you know pretty much kaput. Um, you know, unless you're talking big licensing. So it's all about ticket sales and merch, which is you know is why when people ask how can you best support artists, say get out, go to a show, you know even if you can't afford to buy merch or whatever, you know, just like seeing people at the shows and being able to spread the word that way is still, you know, fundamentally the best way to support artists. And what about, here's an idea for you. When are you guys doing an NFT? Have you done an NFT yet? We haven't done the NFT yet. You got to do the <laughs> NFT because you know what they were saying? Craziest thing came out. I was listening to a podcast about Web 3.0. 90% of the money for NFTs goes to creators versus Spotify that has six, you know, how many people are trying to make money on stream podcasters, all these different things that the yeah. money is in web 3.0. So you have to figure that out because if you could be one of the first, you yeah. can do it. So something to think about. It's, there's talks about it. There's, there's a lot of people spinning the gears on how, how can we make this, you know, something that it really, in my mind, it's uh, getting the consumer market to look at it as a way that they want to consume music. And then, you know, artists will be putting their, putting their, um, all their media, you know, into well, think about some NFTs for your like albums. That. And so that then they yeah. know you own it. Then NFTs for your, your ticket sales, uh, NFTs for signed t-shirts. There's just so much out there. It's crazy. So then think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it, Clay. All right. Thanks, David. All right, that you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I first want to welcome my co-host, David Hollenbach of Hollenbach Leadership. David, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest, and we have a Hall, Hall of Fame podcaster. You never know who we end up meeting uh, through these experiences. How are you, David? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, this, this is going to be great. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. So we have Gary Leland on the show. I, and I, you know, you're the Bitcoin guy, but also a podcast call of famer. So I'm going to jump right on to that because I'm the podcast guy, right? I've done nine, I've almost 10,000 podcasts since when I first started oh, 14 plus years ago. And I think you and I have been in the business about the same amount of time when it comes to podcasting. Isn't that true, Gary? 
Yeah, yeah, I was uh, 2004, um, I think 2004. Oh, whatever wow. Year, whatever year it started, I was like 19. One of the first so you students. didn't before, you were right when the Apple started. I mean, it was, it was, no, Apple iTunes. didn't have podcasting yet. They oh, didn't my have God. Podcasting so, yeah. on the iPod. Wow. I had the, I had the first, um, well, maybe not the first, maybe it was the second, but I had the first podcast directory before Apple did, way before Apple did. So if you oh, wanted wow. a podcast, you either came to my website or a website called Podcast Alley and you hook up your iPod to it, wait overnight, and it would, uh, download your podcast for this for the next day yeah podcast alley was around even past that time right is one of the places to go how long did you have podcast alley for gary uh, well i had podcast pickle podcast alley was the other one i ran podcast pickle uh, okay. um, it was around from 2004 till maybe 2010 2006 time magazine listed it as one of the 50 coolest websites in the world so that was um that was kind of cool at the time and how, why did you decide? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.